Okay, let's continue our study through the first chapter of Revelation. We just looked at the first three verses last week. These verses are going to expand our um, understanding of the context of this letter and its purpose. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this answers right away who wrote down this revelation, this apocalypse of Jesus. And that is John, likely the same John, who's the son of Zebedee, who's the beloved disciple, who has given us the fourth gospel and the letters of first, second, and third John. There is some contention that it might be a different John, but I think most of the data uh, would indicate that this is that same John who we read about in the gospel, who gave us the gospel and those other books. The audience of this revelation is first and foremost to seven churches that are in Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They get mentioned specifically in the next chapter. You can just Google uh, seven churches of Revelation to get a sense of the geography of where those churches are. The letter doesn't disclose exactly and precisely why only those churches were given this revelation, but that is the uh, first audience to receive um, the contents of John's vision. John, we'll find out later in this chapter, he's been exiled uh, from his home base and home church in Ephesus to the island of Patmos, which is southwest of Ephesus, if you look on a map. And this revelation is likely given to John sometime in the 90s, I mean like the literal first, uh, you know, ninth decade of the first century. Uh, this is during the rule of Domitian, who's the emperor uh, of Rome. And that's going to come into play as we hear about some of the persecutions and uh, some of the suffering that John has endured, is enduring, what lies behind his exile to Patmos. So just hold, make that a little bit of a placeholder and we'll continue to expand out that picture as this chapter and subsequent chapters unfold. He writes, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So really quickly here, John moves through three significant titles that are meant to show us and reveal who Jesus is. The first is that Jesus is the faithful witness. In John 18, Jesus says of himself, speaking to Pilate, you say that I am a king, and for this I was born. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So in calling Jesus the faithful witness, John is saying, in Jesus, we get the clearest and best disclosure of who God is, what reality is really all about, and where reality is going. So Jesus gives us the best information on the most important topics. We can He is faithful to convey reality and truth to us. And then he says Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. That's an echo from Colossians 1.18 where it says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything... He would have supremacy. So Jesus is the first resurrection, uh, first human to be resurrected. He is the firstborn. 
He is like a first fruits that indicate where the story of creation is going, that God is also going to resurrect those who are in Jesus in the restoration of all things. And lastly, Jesus is called the ruler of the kings of the earth, not a ruler among some of the kings. He's in a league of his own. He is the capital R ruler of the kings of the earth. In Psalm 89, God says of his anointed one, his Messiah, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So we have Jesus Christ here being called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. All of these titles are meant to signal to us and confer the fact that Jesus has deep and profound ontological authority. That means Jesus is Lord of all heaven and earth. This is why Paul, this is why Paul writes that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? Every, the entire cosmos one day every knee will bow and every tongue is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's in Philippians 2. So we have right out of the gate, John saying, this is a revelation and reminding us this is a revelation about Jesus. And then he uses these titles to say, here are some ways to understand and think about Jesus. He's just reinforcing the fact that this is a book. This is a revelation that is about disclosing the full glory and grandeur about who around who Jesus is and what he is doing in the world. He continues in verse 5. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. John says, look what Jesus did for us. Not He doesn't say, look what Jesus is going to do for us. At this point, he's, look, he's causing us to look back. He's saying, look what Jesus has done for us. He has freed us, past tense, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. And this theme of blood and the lamb's blood and victory through the lamb's blood is going to be a recurring image and motif through the book of, book of Revelation. And John uh um, seeds that here in the opening chapter. And it says that Jesus made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. He doesn't say he made us to be a part of the kingdom. The language is we are the kingdom. And the kingdom of God refers to wherever the rule and reign of God is lived out faithfully. And so we are the kingdom. We are meant to be um a living embodiment of the fact that God rules and reigns in and through us, right? The kingdom of God expands as hearts are yielded to God. It doesn't expand as a geographic territory gets overtaken. That's the way the world's kingdoms expand. You can plant flags here. You can put borders here. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And so it expands as hearts are yielded to Jesus. That's why in Luke 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God doesn't come with your careful observation, nor will people say, oh, there it is, or here it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And it, John notes that 
what Jesus was doing in forgiving us of our sins, of establishing God's rule and reign in our hearts when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, he says, we are now all priests. Now, maybe not as a formal title, um, but as a role, every single Christian is a priest. We're a bridge between God and a spiritually lost world. Not that God isn't involved in the world, but God, God's preferred mode of engaging the world is through his priesthood. And that in the Old Testament was a literal um, narrow band of people who were, who were able to be priests um, because of their association with uh, the um, ironic line in the Old Testament. But in Christ, all Christians are called to be priests. We are called to be a bridge, bringing the goodness and glory of God into the world and then interceding on behalf of the world before God. We receive grace from God. We allow ourselves to be filled by a spirit, loved, renewed in body, mind, and spirit. And then we extend that love, that grace that we've received from God to those around us as a witness, as a testimony, as a sign of his goodness and truth and love. Verse 7, John says, Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So will it be. Amen. This is almost a direct quote from another book, another strange apocalyptic book, which means a book that reveals certain things about who God is and what God is doing in the world. And that is the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Very, very important and famous chapter for first century Jews and Christians. And the more we familiarize ourselves with it, the more um, both the ministry of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and the book of Revelation will just become more clear to us. In Daniel 7.13, Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And Daniel sees this, this exalted one, that the kingdoms of the earth are handed over to this exalted one, and he rules and reigns faithfully as God's anointed one. And this is a signal to us, um, maybe not an obvious signal to us, but it would be an obvious signal to uh, these early Christians in these early churches that if part of what this vision is that John is disclosing to us ties into Daniel 7, then this is apocalyptic, meaning we need to understand that part of the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. We talked about that last week, that it, Revelation is an apocalyptic, it, it has an overlap between three genres. Parts of it are like a letter, like the letter to the churches. Much of it is apocalyptic, which means it has deep symbolism and imagery and numbers that are meant to convey truths in a way that are designed to be more striking than if you just simply describe them in a literal or prepositional way. And we'll see that later on in just a few verses down where John is describing Jesus using apocalyptic and symbolic language, but that doesn't diminish um, 
our understanding or the vision of who Jesus is. It actually expands it. So the genre of Revelation, the kind of book in its totality that it is, is a very unique mix of apocalyptic literature like Daniel or is found also in the book of Ezekiel. Parts of it can be read like a letter and parts of it are meant to be read like a prophecy, a disclosure of what's really happening um, in the world right now and also what is going to happen. And so that's part of the reason why Revelation for many people is very difficult to understand because it does kind of dance and play within these different genres. But moving through it carefully and doing a little bit of homework can help us to understand, uh, regardless of where we are in Revelation, how to skillfully and faithfully understand it and then how then to apply it to our lives. Verse 8 I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then in verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The background here is that at this time, there was a pretty firmly established imperial cult under Domitian, one of the ways that Rome tried to secure and maintain psychological power and unity across its vast geographic empire was to ensure that there was deep allegiance to the emperor. And how Rome did that was by establishing an imperial cult where you could worship whatever gods your ancestors did, particular Roman gods, Greek gods. There was quite a wide berth given to religious pluralism. But it came with a pretty important caveat, and that was you also had to incorporate worship and acknowledgement of the emperor's deity as part of your religious uh, rituals and conviction. So you could worship one god, many gods, but Caesar, and at this time Domitian, had to be acknowledged and worshipped as well. And while the details might be a little vague in terms of the precise a series of events that would have led John to being exiled at Patmos, what's really clear is that the early Christians did not and would did not accept this claim by the emperor that he, the um, that Caesar was Lord and God or a son of the gods and that they wouldn't have participated in any ceremony no matter how meager that uh, was meant to acknowledge and celebrate um, that claim by the Roman emperor. So John refuses, like many Christians did, to participate in that kind of system of idolatry. And he says, hey, I share with you in Jesus the persecution and the patient endurance that has to come from realizing we give allegiance only to Jesus. We will honor the emperor. We will honor the government. We will do all that we can to live as peaceable citizens. That's a very clear New Testament challenge for all Christians. 
but we are never to worship or to hold up as divine or as divinely authorized any human person. Jesus alone is Lord. That gets John in the trouble. Domitian exiles him to Patmos to make an example of him. And this is a small island where I think one commentator said, uh, John is left to bleach out on the rocks and die. John's a prominent figure in this, in what Rome would have understood to be this new sect. And so he is sent to Patmos to serve as an example. He's exiled, he's isolated, he's alienated, he's cut off from his worshiping community. And yet in the next verse, we read this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Notice John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Um, some aren't sure if that means that there was some kind of a visionary trance or a dream or just a deep state of prayer. But John says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, meaning this was not a in, uh, an, an internal hallucination. You know, that, that's one of the ways that um, some liberal scholars have kind of dismissed much of the import and significance of Revelation. This is a, this is a kind of an interior hallucination that John understood as a vision. John's saying, no, I was praying. I was in clear mind and I heard of something outside of me revealed itself. But notice something that is really easy to skip over here. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day in the New Testament refers to the first day of the week when Christians began to prioritize gathering together to spend time praying together and learning and, um, and engaging uh, the apostles teachings, which now become the new Testament and the old Testament and, and worshiping God. So he is in the spirit on Sunday, uh, whether it was Sunday morning, he just, he doesn't say but the Lord's day. And that to me is really significant because that means that John's devotion to Jesus didn't tail off because of hardship or social isolation, or in his case, extreme social distancing, right? Think about how easy that might've been. I'm going to church. I'm discipling these people. I'm a leader within this church, likely in Ephesus. And then I'm exiled to Patmos. Well, I, I'm here by myself. So what's, what's the point of keeping up these rhythms? What's the, I mean, Maybe God's abandoned me. I'll just, I guess I just stop. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to keep worshiping on Sunday morning. I'm going to keep praying. Obviously, it wouldn't have been localized to just Sunday. But I think that's really, really instructive for us who are also going through a season of isolation and distancing and varying degrees of hardship. Have we continued to keep up some of the weekly rhythms of study prayer, worship that connect us to our church as a family. I'm not saying we have to all, you know, hit, hit an alarm and say, well, Sunday, 10 o'clock, we're all going to be doing the same things together. I'm not talking about that level of legalism, but I know for me during this time as I've, I don't know, there's been something really, really good 
about setting aside a structured, intentional time of prayer and worship that is different than what would normally happen on a Sunday when we're gathering regularly as a church. But to do that um, myself on a Sunday, that's, that's really, really important. And I love that witness here to John's continued faithfulness to say, he's like, I'm not going to let a little exile get in the way of me continuing to live for Jesus, serve, for, serve Jesus, set aside intentional time to worship Jesus. I think that's amazing. Verse 12, then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full force. John turns, and what does he see? He sees this larger-than-life, exalted Lord Jesus, like the Lord God Jesus. And he says he doesn't see one like a son of man, because son of man is a Jewish expression that can just be, be used as a synonym for a human being. He says... I saw one like the Son of Man. Again, a reference back to Daniel 7, this coming one, this ancient of days, to whom the Father is going to gift all the kingdom, all power, all authority. This central figure who is meant to be understood in the Jewish scriptures as the point, the telos, the end game of all of history. John says, I saw one standing before me who was that person. Now I want to read, I want to move through, I'm not going to read it, but I want to move through Daryl Johnson's ex exposition of this section in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, which is an awesome, um, very accessible guide to the book of Revelation. But his exegesis through this section and its symbolism is really, really exceptional. And this is where understanding Revelation as part apocalyptic literature is really important. Because in these few verses, there is such a density of meaning that is designed to be conveyed through symbols. So if we're unfamiliar with the symbols, it's just going to strike us as strange. But when we become familiar with the symbols and what they're connected to, we begin to realize, wow, John is really grasping at straws here to try and communicate in its fullness what he has seen. And he does so 
using reference that a first century believer would totally get, but that might be lost on us. And so it might be easy for us to read this passage and kind of be like, that's weird. Okay, let's move on to something that's more readily accessible, like the letters to the churches that contain instructions. But don't move through this passage too quickly. Here's why. The phrase one, like the Son of Man, refers to the central figure in history, to the one whom all the kingdoms of the world are given, the one to whom all people of every age owe allegiance. It refers to the pre-existent heavenly being who comes to establish the kingdom that can't be destroyed. As one German scholar demonstrated, the title, One Like the Son of Man, is just about the most pretentious title anyone could ever have used in the ancient Near East. John says, I turned to see the voice and I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. And later in the encounter, John learns that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches that are on John's heart. But notice the phrase, in the middle. The one like the Son of Man is in the middle. Not above, looking down, not outside, looking in, but in the middle, right there in the middle of the churches. Which is to say, in each of the messages that Jesus then dictates to the seven churches, Jesus can say, I know. I know what is happening in and among you. I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your fears. I know your pain. And I know your emptiness. The risen and living Jesus lives and moves among his churches. He is moving among us right now. Verse 13. I saw this one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. This robe for first century believers is understood as a priest's robe, the robe the high priest wore, like Aaron. The glorified Son of Man is the great high priest. Before anything else is revealed about Jesus, John needs to be reminded of this fact. Jesus Christ is a priest. He's a mediator. And the Latin word for priest is pontifex. And it's an engineering term that means a bridge builder. So a priest is one who builds a bridge between two sides of a canyon. But to be effective as a priest, you need to know both sides of the canyon very well. And John is being reminded that Jesus is the greatest bridge builder of all. He is the one who bridges the infinite chasm between us and God. And he does so because only he knows fully both sides of that divide, both the divine side and the human. He is clothed with a robe because he is the great high priest and he's girded across his breast with a golden girdle. When a belt was worn around the waist, a person was preparing to do work. But when a belt was worn across the chest, the person was returning and resting in the accomplishment of a task. John is being reminded that the high priestly work of Jesus Christ is completed. It's finished. The one final sacrifice has been altered, sorry, has been offered on the altar. 
He has done everything that needs to be done in order for us to have life now and beyond the grave. John says his head and hair were white like wool, like snow. And Daryl Johnson notes that these words declare the agelessness of Jesus Christ. He was there before the beginning. He will be there after the end. He is here in the middle. He has been around and he's seen it all. The rise and fall of ancient Assyria and Babylon and Persia, the rise and fall of Greece and Rome, the rise and fall of world-dominating empires like Spain and Britain. He's been around and watched the ascent and collapse of ideologies, of apartheid, Marxism, Darwinism. Rulers have had their day. Systems of thought have had their day. But he keeps on standing. His hair is white like wool, like snow. And this reveals the wisdom of Jesus. He knows what is really going on in any nation, in any city, in any church, in any person. He knows where it's all going. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. Jesus Christ isn't just pure and holy, but he is purifying Fire illuminates and penetrates, but it also cleanses. It burns away impurities. And the eyes of the glorified Lord not only look at us, but they look through us, penetrating the masks and the veils which we use to try and hide our true being. And Johnson notes that this is really good to know. I mean, it's scary, And at times it can be painful, but it's also very liberating. Jesus can look through all of our facades and he can see all the junk that is ruining our lives and he can burn it away. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. Again, any reader who's steeped in the book of Daniel, which many people aren't today, And so that's forgivable, that's okay, but know that for anyone who's steeped in the book of Daniel would have gotten this reference because in another vision given to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at that time, all the human kingdoms of ancient history are represented as these huge statues whose feet are a mixture of iron and clay, meaning the foundation can't bear the weight of these kingdoms. They will inevitably collapse. But the glorified Son of Man has feet of burnished bronze, which means he is a strong foundation. He is a firm foundation. His kingdom stands on steady feet that have already been tested, that have already been strengthened by fire. All the other kingdoms of the world rest on shaky feet, but Jesus and his kingdom rest on feet that endure forever. The image also suggests that wherever Jesus Christ walks, wherever he goes, he overcomes all opposition. He burns away the evil. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, verse 15. And this um, indicates the power, but also the eloquence of Jesus's words. The image suggests that when Jesus speaks, his voice, like the sound of waters cascading over rocks, drowns out all other voices. 
and yet like the sound of water falling over rocks, it also fills the listener with peace and quiet. Verse 16, and in his right hand he held seven stars. John is later told that the seven stars represent the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches. But Johnson notes that Jesus is also saying something more because in a first century pagan mind, the seven stars would clearly refer to the seven planets known at that time. So people thought that all of life was under the sway and control of those planets. And so people anxiously consulted their astrology tables. The Roman emperors understood this. And so they asserted their supposed cosmic rule by surrounding their thrones with stars and planets. And in Greek religion, the goddess Hecate held the stars and called herself the beginning and the end. So what is Jesus revealing in this symbol? A complete counter image, a counter to this dominant pagan story. The seven stars are in Jesus's right hand. No other God holds the stars. Caesar isn't holding the stars. Jesus is. The planets don't control anyone. Jesus controls them. The stars do not run life. Jesus does. The Son of Man is Lord over the cosmos. And the universe is held together by him and in him, which is an echo of Colossians 1.17. And John continues, Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Johnson writes, of course, what other way would, how, what other way would John put it? The word that proceeds from the mouth of the Son of Man cuts through all the mumble jumble and nonsense. William Barclay notes that the word John uses for sword, it doesn't refer to a long, narrow fencer's blade, but to a tongue-shaped sword used for close fighting. When the living Jesus speaks, he comes right up close to us. He gets in our face. Christ's words are not limp. They cut through willful resistance. They divide good from evil. They overcome opposition and rebellion, and they establish God's righteousness. And John writes that his face, his face was like the sun shining in all its strength. Right? Can, can we hear the challenge that John has to try and capture what is being revealed to him using the most uh, pregnant and powerful images that he um, can, can, can reach for. His face, like the sun, like the sun shining at midday, Jesus's face, so brilliant, so warm, it can only be compared to one of the most awesome of nature's wonders, the sun and its brilliant brilliance. And here's the wonder of wonder, Johnson writes, that brilliant, awesome face was shining on John. And in the Old Testament, there's this great blessing that says, let your face shine on us. And here's John experiencing that, the risen and exalted Lord 
turns all his purity towards his people, not to crush them, but to free them so that they can shine with his light. Isn't that an amazing exposition of the text and its symbolism? When it takes hold of us, when we can allow ourselves, even for a moment, to step imaginatively into John's shoes, verse 17 makes total sense, doesn't it? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where Jesus has made himself so real to you that you are overcome in your ability to process it. I personally, I have not had many. I've had a few, but I haven't had many. But when those moments come, and when they have come in my life, I understand what John's talking about in verse 17. I understand feeling overwhelmed by the glory of God. John is overwhelmed, not just by what he has seen, but by who he has seen. This one-man apocalypse this ancient of the days, this anointed and exalted one, Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, the world's savior and redeemer. And the gravity of who this one is causes John to collapse under the weight of all of it, of trying to just hold it together in his mind and heart. That's why we read that Jesus places his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, John, write what you have seen. What is and what is to take place after this? And with those instructions, Jesus discloses the purpose of this book. A revelation, an apocalypse is being given to John of who Jesus is. And John is going to write down what he has seen, what is, and what is to take place after these things. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and to the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Three quick takeaways that I think every Christian should grapple with in response to this passage. Number one, let's remember that places of isolation, places of alienation, places of exile, that from our vantage point look like they're hopeless, like it must have looked to John when he's exiled on Patmos, those places are sometimes where we encounter Jesus most powerfully. Places of isolation, alienation, and seeming hopelessness are sometimes where we encounter Jesus most powerfully. Another takeaway is that this Jesus who we read about 
in these verses who John is trying desperately to um, articulate and and um, use symbols to take hold of the awesomeness of who Jesus is. This is the Jesus who has saved you and who now serves you by his spirit. This is the Jesus who rules and reigns within your life if you have surrendered your life to him. This is the Jesus who rules and reigns over your life even as parts of your world begin to unravel. With eyes like fire, you are seen and you are known. And if you have turned your life over to Jesus, he is powerfully at work in your life, directing the events in such a way that they fulfill a divine good purpose, even if moment by moment you are not aware of that. And lastly, in times of suffering and hardship and persecution, what these verses teach us is that things are not as they seem. That's one of the big lessons of all apocalyptic literature, which is normally disclosed to God's people during times of exile and hardship, where from their perspective, it might be very tempting to assume God has abandoned them because God feels different, uh, distant, God seems distant, enemies are surrounding them, the bad guys are winning, the bad news keeps coming. And what apocalyptic literature does is it unveils the deeper reality, and that is things are not as they seem. The risen and exalted Lord reigns and rules, and he is directing these events for his purposes. And you can trust him, and he's got your back, and he's in your corner, and he is at work in you and through you, and he is orchestrating and doing something that while you do not see it, and while you might not be able to trace his hand, his purposes in and through what are happening are restorative, are redemptive, are good. And so when we find ourselves in a place where it seems to us like God is absent or God is indifferent or God is powerless, we need to come back and read Revelation chapter 1 and be reminded nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus holds the cosmos in his right hand, and that includes you. So rest in that picture. Draw strength from it. This exalted one, one like the Son of Man, stands in the middle of your pain and your hardship, offering power, assurance, and hope. So as you go, friends and family of Nelson Covenant Church, may you encounter Jesus in your places of isolation, exile, and suffering. May his beauty and power be experienced as both a comfort and a challenge. And may it change how you see and evaluate the circumstances around you. 
And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great week.